Hi, Element. Oh, good to see you guys. I just got to see a first service. I normally come to this service, so I miss most of those people. And it's good to see them because I'm not I'm not often teaching, so I maybe I'm up here once or twice a year. So it's good to see you from this vantage point. So welcome. It's, um, we're, we're happy to have you here. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles underneath the seat backs in front of you, uh, underneath the seats there. If you don't own one, you can take one. Take it as our gift to you. We also have notes on all of the communion tables around the room that have the scriptures we'll be going through and some of the notes. And also, if you have a smartphone, you can download an app called Version. Click on More, click on Events. It'll bring us up by GPS, and it has the notes, the announcements, and everything that goes along with today's message. And uh, my name is Eric. I am one of the pastors here. And I would like you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This is Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Jesus speaking, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, that you love us uh, so much that even when we, when we stray, when we move away from you, you never let us go, but you always bring us back. Even if that requires discipline and reproof at times, we thank you that you love us that much to never let us go. And so this morning, Father, we pray that you would speak to us and that we would have ears to hear what you would say to us as your people, as your church, and what you would want to do in our hearts and in our lives. So we lift this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Um, well, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we're going through this series, and this is actually week 12 of a series we're calling Never Read a Bible Verse. And we're calling it that, that not because we don't want you to read your Bible, but because we want to encourage people to read the Bible in context. So for the last 11 weeks, we've gone through various passages that may have been misinterpreted, talked about some subjects that have been misunderstood, and so hopefully that's been helpful for everybody. Today, we're going to be talking about the danger for us as Christians of forgetting about Jesus in our everyday lives. Now, I don't mean that we forget who He is or forget even what He's done for us. What I mean is that it's deceptively easy for us to live as if we don't need anything from Him, to live as practical atheists, to become complacent and self-reliant in our relationship with God. And so you can open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, because we're going to spend most of our time there. Now, <clears throat> when I was a little boy, I spent many nights with my grandparents as I was growing up. And my grandmother, she was raised Catholic in the Philippines. My grandfather, he was raised Baptist in Missouri. And they met during World War II, and they married soon after. And when they had moved to California, they became members of a Baptist church. And it was my grandmother who often talked to me about God, and she taught me how to pray. And I wouldn't realize this until later, but she actually laid a foundation of faith. And in their spare room where I slept, they had this plaque with this picture on it. How many of you have seen that picture before? How many of you have that picture? Maybe some of you have it. I don't know. But I can remember vividly as I would go to sleep, I, I would look at that, and I, I would just wonder, why is... Jesus outside knocking on that door. Who, whose door is that? Anyway, whose house was that? And it wasn't until I was 18 that I actually heard the gospel and committed my life to follow Christ. 
And the church that I had attended at, at that time, they ended every service with an altar call, and they invited people to open their heart to Jesus, to give their life to Him. And it was targeted at unbelievers who realized that they were sinners and that Jesus had died for their sins, and now He calls them to follow Him. In this verse, Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This verse was almost always used to set up that invitation. Well, what a beautiful picture, right? Jesus knocking on the door of my heart. And, and all I have to do is open that door and let him in to have an intimate relationship with him. Well, that was me. And th that's exactly what I did. But it wasn't until much later that I understood that it was really God who was doing all of the work to bring me to a place to where I could even respond to his call, his knock, if you will, in repentance and faith, trusting Jesus for my salvation. And I realize now that if it wasn't for God's spirit, I would have never truly opened that door on my own. And the risk of misunderstanding Revelation 3.20 is that it can affect the way people hear Jesus' actual call to repent and believe. And it can reduce Jesus from that of an enthroned king into a peasant on his knees, desperately hoping that we will accept him, as if he were the ones needing our approval. And it's in this way that we can minimize the need for people to take Jesus seriously. It puts God in our debt instead of seeing ourselves as saved by His merciful grace. Because if the only message that we hear is that Jesus loves me and He has a wonderful plan for my life, then it really doesn't matter if I let Him in, does it? Now, at the same time, I, I, I'm not really mad that this verse is used this way because God can use the simple truth that opening the door of our hearts is simply trusting that Jesus is the Son of God and believing that He died for my sins and that He was raised again from the dead and that He loves me and He wants to be in a relationship with me. But the problem is, in context, this is not Jesus' message in Revelation 3.20. His words here were not an invitation to unbelievers for salvation. They are an invitation to professing Christians in the church who were reproved for their lukewarm relationship with Christ. It's an invitation to repent and renew their zeal or else face His discipline. And the danger for us as believers is if we don't understand who Jesus is addressing and what He's saying and why He's saying it, then we'll miss the real message here, the call to examine our hearts. Have we become lukewarm? self-sufficient rather than dependent upon Him? Have we grown superficial? Have we grown complacent rather than experiencing intimate communion with Him? So this knock here, this is a knock of discipline and reproof to a church that has lost its zeal and forgotten its mission. And it's also, it's an invitation once again to intimacy and communion with Jesus that transforms us into His image. Now, seven years ago, Aaron did a series on the seven churches in Revelation, which you can listen to on our website, and that provides a fuller description of the historical details about this last letter written to the church of Laodicea. Today, we're going to look at it from a little bit different angle. Each of the seven letters to the churches in Revelation, they all end with the same exhortation. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May that, may that be our prayer today. May God grant us ears to hear what He's saying 
to us today. Now, it's been said that the Church of Laodicea most resembles the Western Church, especially the Church in America. Laodicea was probably the worst of the seven. Ephesus, they were in danger of being snuffed out as a church, but at least they had many good things about them. Sardis was the other church. They had nothing good said about them, but at least we read that there was a remnant there that remained faithful. But Laodicea here, it was so bad that it actually made Jesus sick. It makes him want to puke. That's what it says here. And so surely there's a warning there for us. You see, Laodicea was your ritzy, influential church in the nice part of the suburbs, and they thought that they had everything together. Their lives were comfortable. I mean, surely that means God is blessing you, right? Hashtag blessed, right? But they were as spiritually poor as they were materially rich. The church was filled with affluence and apathy, two things that too often go hand in hand. And so to them, as well as to us, Jesus says, be zealous and repent. Now, we can't presume to know the socioeconomic demographics of that church and how it compares to our church. But one thing we know for sure is that we are fabulously wealthy by the world's standards. And so we have to pause and think that the church in Revelation that was the most comfortable, the most prosperous in Jesus' Jesus's estimation was the church that had gotten it the most wrong. It should make us seriously consider how the affluence and the comfort of our American lifestyle might impact our relationship with Jesus. And so we're going to dig into it. Let's look at Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14. If you're using the Element Bible, it's page 665. And he starts by saying this, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So Jesus here, he starts the letter by describing who he is. He is the Amen, which is a Hebrew word that at its root means to stand firm, steady, trustworthy. He uses it this way as a title that identifies him as the God of truth. And when he says faithful and true witness, this is a description of the Amen to the Greek audience. And it says that he is the beginning of God's creation which would declare him supreme over all of the other gods that were worshipped in temples that covered those high mountain places who supposedly controlled all of nature there. Now we know from the whole of Scripture that this does not mean, as some cults falsely believe, that there was a time when Jesus didn't exist and then God created him. You see, Jesus is calling himself the originator, the source of all of God's creation. The Apostle Paul, he makes that clear in the book of Colossians in chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. He says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the source of everything. He's the amen. He's the faithful and true witness. And it's no coincidence that he describes himself this way because he's going to give them the truth about their spiritual condition. You see, they were blind to their spiritual poverty. You see, it's very possible for you to not know who you really are because self-deception runs very deep in each one of us. What you may not be able to see in yourself, God is able to see clearly. 
And in verse 15, Jesus says to them, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you would be either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Some hard words there. Now some take this to mean that Jesus either wishes that they were really spiritual, being hot, or really unspiritual, being cold. Why would it be better to be cold than lukewarm? Well, the thought is that it'd be better because a spiritually cold person makes no pretense at all to follow Christ. They know that they're on the outside. And in that state, it's easier to reach someone like that for Christ rather than a person who has heard all of the great things about God and responded in a lukewarm and in a nominal commitment to Christ. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying that I wish you were either on fire for me or I wish you were just a totally unbelieving pagan. More likely, Jesus is saying, I wish that you were good for something. He's calling out their ineffective faith here. Now, how many of you have an insulated cup or a mug of some sort? Some of you? Like this? Yeah? Why are they so popular now? They keep your beverages either hot or cold. And so we, we know that that's really important. And so cold water, we know it's refreshing. It's satisfying. Now, maybe this is an American thing, but if you travel to different countries, you'll see that they don't put ice in the water. They'll ask, well, would you like water? And in, in many places, it's not tap water, it's bottled water or it's spring water. And they'll ask you if you want gas or no gas. Do you want bubbles? Or no bubbles. I personally prefer the bubbles. But if you were to say to them, well, no, the tap water is fine, they'll look at you like, well, why don't we just get it from the toilet? You Americans, you guys are crazy. And, and they'll bring you water, and it's lukewarm. It's room temperature. And I don't want room temperature. I want cold. I want ice, because cold water is refreshing on a hot day. Now, hot water, on the other hand, in the ancient world, it could be used for cooking, or it could be used for sterilizing, or it could be used for soothing your aches and pains. It was the lukewarm water that was just plain useless. Now, to the north of Laodicea is Heropolis, and that was a city that was built on a thermal hot spring. And it was famous for its medicinal qualities because of all the minerals that were in the water. And the water which flowed from that city, those springs were boiling hot. And then to the south of Laodicea was the city of Colossae. And next to that was a stream that flowed from a mountain spring. And the waters there are exceptionally cold. And Laodicea sits between these two cities, one hot, one cold, both good water. But the, source, the water source in Laodicea, it was terrible. It wasn't hot or it wasn't cold. It was lukewarm. And it was reddish in color. And it made people sick. And like the city's water, the church was lukewarm, and Jesus was on the verge of spitting them out of his mouth. It appears that the church made Jesus sick when he thought about them. Think about that. Now, Jesus, he isn't saying that I wish you were either virtuous or I wish that you would be totally wicked. He's saying that I wish you would be spiritually good for something, but you're not. And the heart of their problem, and indeed the definition of spiritual lukewarmness was found in their description in verse 17 here. Jesus says to them, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Spiritual lukewarmness is living our lives as if we needed nothing from God. 
Now, most of us know that's just not something we verbalize, right? That's not in our statement of faith, that we need nothing from God. We know that that's the wrong answer, right? Like the Sunday school teacher who asked the class, you know, well, what's big and gray and has a long trunk and floppy ears? And the class says, well, you know, it sounds like an elephant, but we're in church, so it's Jesus, right? That's got to be the right answer. Well, we know. We know the right answer, right? And yet many of us can live our lives as practical atheists. You see, we have all sorts of blessings. Most of us don't have to worry about where our food is going to come from, if there'll be bread or if there'll be milk in the grocery store. We've got medicine to help us get better. We've got insurance, you know, when we have a problem, something happens. We have savings and retirement accounts. And you know what? I have all of those things. Those things are not bad. But we can come to a place where day by day, we think that getting through this day depends on me. And we know, we know the Lord's Prayer. It says, give us this day our daily bread. But we like to know, Lord, give us this day bread for retirement. But the prayer is for today. Give me what I need today. Or lead us not into temptation. You don't think that you wake up in the morning and you're going to have temptation do I think that there are sins that I'm not capable of falling into, that I don't have to be vigilant before God, thinking that I can just go naturally into my day, ready to conquer? No. But many of us live our lives as if we don't really need anything from God. Maybe when there's a bad diagnosis, maybe when your marriage is falling apart, then we come and we pray. But basically, we need nothing. John Piper, he describes the barometer of self-satisfaction, not by looking into your head to see if you think you're needy, because we can all be blind to our spiritual condition, but by looking at your prayer life. He says this, It doesn't matter what we think in our head. The test of whether we are in bondage to spiritual self-satisfaction is how earnest and frequent and extended our prayers for change are. Do you seek the Lord earnestly and often in secret for deeper knowledge of Christ? for greater earnestness in prayer, for more boldness in witness, for sweeter joy in the Holy Spirit, for deeper sorrow over sin, for warmer compassion for the lost, for more divine power to love? Or is the coolness and the perfunctoriness of your prayer life, Exhibit A, that you are spiritually self-satisfied and lukewarm? You know, we can forget what Jesus said in John chapter 15. In verse 5, he said, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. And the more vigorously we grow into spiritual maturity, the more we will feel just exactly how needy we are, unable to carry out one iota of obedience without his help. I can't do anything today without Jesus. He must be the center of my day, of my life. The only thing that I can do really well, apart from him, is sin. And I don't want to sin. I want to be close to him. If we are to do anything that the Lord delights in, we must abide in Christ. For apart from him, we can do nothing. But here, these Laodiceans, they're congratulating themselves. You know, we're wealthy. I don't need anything. They're self-reliant. And the amen, the faithful and true witness, he's going to deliver the truth to them like a physician would to a patient. I've got the results of your tests, and even though you may feel fine, I want you to know the seriousness of your condition. You don't realize that you're wretched, 
and you're poor, and you're pitiable, and you're blind, and you're naked. How terrifying it is to have one's own self-assessment be so wrong. And in verse 18, Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So what's Jesus' advice here? He says, come to me. Buy what I'm offering. Jesus was the source of everything that they needed, everything that we need, and they greatly underestimated him, paying him lip service lukewarm worship, token prayers. And it was time that they understood their poverty and Christ's riches. They needed to stop relying on themselves and understand He is the vine. And apart from Him, there was nothing they could do. They were useless for God's kingdom. But what's interesting is, why does Jesus say to these destitute, spiritually empty beggars, those who are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked, that they should come and they should buy from him. What currency could they possibly use? And this is the same idea that's expressed in Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 1. It says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. See, the currency is the same in that passage. Total emptiness inability to do anything of eternal value apart from Christ. And they were to bring that and say, here's my money, my emptiness. I'm poor. Save me. Help me. Heal me. That's how you buy from Jesus when you have nothing. And you know what? That is not a small thing because it requires that we humble ourselves before him. See, most people are not willing to look at their resources, to look at their lives, and to recognize that I am really poor. I really have nothing to offer and no ability to, to do good in and of myself. And that's why Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount by, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what does he say that we should buy from him? In verse 18, he says, First, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you can become rich. This is the genuine spiritual wealth of salvation in Christ. It's the wealth of heavenly joy, the kingdom of heaven. I will give you gold that will last for all eternity. Gold that was refined by the fire of my suffering on the cross. The free gift of wealth in me. And the second thing he says, he counsels them to bring their, no their nothingness their nakedness. And he says, in return, I will clothe you with white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. This is the symbol of Christ's imputed righteousness to us, the imputed righteousness of Christ given to us as a free gift by faith. Jesus' perfect obedience becomes for us a beautiful white robe of righteousness for the purpose of clothing our nakedness. And we stand today before God in that righteousness because of it. And the third thing he says, come and buy salve to put on your eyes so you can see. He's speaking here of the gift of spiritual sight, which is genuine faith, the ability to see the spiritual world as it really is, things in the spiritual realm that they may have never seen before. The uh, theologian John Stott, he says it this way. He says, they are poor, but Christ has gold. 
They are naked, but Christ has clothes. They are blind, but Christ has eye salve. Let them no longer trust in their banks, their clothing factories, their Phrygian eye ointment. Let them come to him. He alone can enrich their poverty, clothe their nakedness, and heal their blindness. He can open their eyes to perceive a spiritual world which they have never dreamed. In a word, he can save them. And then in verse 19, it becomes now for us a timeless word to all believers in every church. Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. You see, Jesus loves us too much to leave us in that state. And though this is a stern word of warning, it's a true comfort to those who love him because it proves that we are genuine children son and daughters of God when he brings this discipline. And he'll speak to us in a way that will get our attention when we're sinning. And true children of God will inevitably take these warnings to heart and repent and renew their zeal. So that's the remedy. That's the remedy. Be zealous. Be earnest about your relationship with him. Now, we know the whole world loves zealous people. People like Yo-Yo Ma, the great cellist, or Albert Einstein, or Steve Jobs, and I mean countless other people. You see, zeal has the meaning of wholehearted, full-throttle, all-out, six-gear. The Bishop J.C. Ryle, Archbishop of Liverpool in the 19th century, he wrote this. He says, the definition of zeal in this text, Revelation 3.19, is to be a person of one thing. A zealous Christian is one who sees only one thing, cares for only one thing, lives for only one thing, is swallowed up by only one thing, gets pleasure and joy from only one thing. The Holy Spirit working through the zeal of Christians is what successfully spread Christianity throughout the last 2,000 years. Even facing their own death of martyrdom, Christians kept their zeal and their passion and their love for Christ, even to their very last breath. Now today, we can equate zeal with being a fanatic. You know, when we think of Christians who come across as fanatical or zealous, we're often put off by them. You know, fanatics are usually rude or they're offensive or they're defensive, they're insensitive. And... They demand and they insist on their own way. They're counterproductive, often doing the thing that is, you know, just the opposite of what was intended. And most people think that fanaticism is proportional to their degree of commitment to Christ. But that's not true. That's not the case. You see, the problem is they are not fanatical enough. They're not like Jesus enough. Usually they're fanatical about judgment, but they're not fanatical about love. Or they're fanatical about truth, but they're not fanatical about grace. They're not fanatically sensitive like Jesus was. They're not fanatically loving or self-sacrificing or humble or wise. In a nutshell, they're not fanatical about the gospel. You see, when you're around somebody who's totally sold out to the gospel, they make you feel like Jesus made people feel. They listen to you. Yeah. They care about you. <laughs> the prostitutes like Jesus, even when he told them to repent. Children like Jesus, because he spent time with them, the worthless of that society. It was only the falsely zealous religious leaders that hated Jesus. The zeal of the early Christians was genuine, like that of Jesus. 
And Jesus, he wants us to be zealous, not fanatical. And this is why he says to the church in Laodicea, be zealous, because when you're not, it makes me nauseous. It makes me want to throw up. And so we need to ditch the indifference and make an impact and, and get involved. Well, you may say, well, you know, I don't want to be a hypocrite, and I, I'm just really not feeling it right now, so it'd be hypocritical for me to really get involved, to really be zealous. Well, no, that's not hypocrisy. That's called maturity. It's called adulthood, doing things that we know are right, even when we may not feel them at the time. I mean, yes, sometimes in the Christian life, our feelings and our affections lead the way, and then our actions come. But so very often, we have to choose the right actions, and then the affections come, and they follow in their train. Maybe you're an emotional person. You know, it's interesting. A lot of Christians, often men, will say, well, you know, I'm just not a very emotional, passionate person. That's why I'm just, I'm just sort of chill when it comes to God. And I say, well, have you ever seen yourself when you're watching football? You've got emotions in there. I know. I've seen them come out. And so the command, the command is to be zealous. But then comes the invitation, and that is fellowship with Jesus, which brings us back to the verse we started with, Revelation 3.20. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Have you ever wondered why Jesus stands on the outside and knocks? I mean, he could just kick the door down and come in, right? He has the power. He has the right to do so. So why does the creator of the universe choose to wait for our response? We can't miss this part. You see, permission is sacred. Jesus chooses this path because he desires intimacy with his creation, a relationship of mutual choosing. Because where there's not permission, there cannot be love. Love cannot be forced. It has to be granted permission. Jesus waits on the outside and he knocks, not because he has to, but because he honors our decision. He wants what power cannot gain. He wants a relationship. And in a culture where the powerful and the elite think that they can take what they want, we understand the violation when permission is ignored. And so isn't it refreshing that the creator of the universe, who could take anything that he wants, he rather gives his creation the power of permission. Um, author Shane Wood, in his book, Between Two Trees, he says it this way. Even if we treat it, permission, profanely, even if we overlook the power it possesses, the mystery it contains, the divinity it emanates, to give permission to another is a moment charged with intimacy a gesture suffused with intensity, for permission is an invitation to closeness. Permission reroutes the boundaries of our world to include another, to welcome another, to incorporate another into what is by design our own. Jesus stands on the outside of your door and he knocks because your permission is sacred. He won't force his way because love has to be chosen. And Jesus, he's saying to a lukewarm church and to lukewarm Christians, do you want to dine with me again? Do you want to have fellowship with me again? Theologically, we know that our union with Christ, it's fixed. It's unalterable. You can't have more or less union with Christ. 
all of the blessings of our justification and our sanctification, they all flow from being joined to Christ, our union with Him. But then there is communion with Christ, which can ebb and flow, just like in a marriage. You're either married or you're not. But you know that that marriage relationship can wax and it can wane and your communion, it can be strong or it can be weak. And even so, if we have union with Christ, it's an invitation for us to also pursue communion with Christ. In terms that we can all understand, Jesus says, it's been a long time, friend, since you've invited me over for an intimate dinner. It's been a long time since we've sat down and we really talked heart to heart. Sometimes when life is crazy busy, I can get complacent in my marriage. And Terry, my wife, will say to me, I feel disconnected from you. We haven't really spent any quality time together. And I know she's right, because I can feel it too. We've been in the same space. We've shared the same meals. But we haven't really communed with each other. We haven't really taken the time to connect. And you know that as a married couple, that you need that. And that it's a warning sign if you don't have that. But you know what? It's a critical red flashing light when you don't want it anymore. And so it is with Jesus. The Laodiceans, they would understand that the invitation to share a meal with Jesus is to invite him into the most intimate parts of their life. It would mean allowing him to do the work of transforming their lives. And I think that's why so many leave Jesus on the outside, knocking. Because the transformation process from death, our old life, to life, where Jesus is leading us, it can be really hard. It can be hard. And giving Jesus permission to dig up the dead and the ugly parts of our lives and to redeem them, it's the most rewarding thing that we can do. But it's also painful. It can be painful. And so the question for us is, has it been a while since you've invited Jesus into the depths of your life, had him come in and sit down and spend uninterrupted time with him? That's his invitation. Come, open the door, welcome me in. In verse 21, he says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So again, the command is for zeal, and the invitation is for fellowship. And the promise here is to give them real authority. You see, they thought that they had it. We're rich. We're somebody. We don't need anything. And Jesus said to them, oh, no, you're poor and you're naked and you're pitiable and you're blind. But to the one who conquers, in verse 21, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. In other words, I will give you real wealth. I will give you real authority. You can reign with me. They thought they were rich, they were prosperous, and they valued strength. And Jesus is promising them real strength. In verse 22, Jesus says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I don't know what you need to hear today, but I know that in every church there are likely Laodiceans. I know. I know because I've been one. I know what it feels like to grow half-hearted for Jesus, to be half-hearted in giving or half-hearted in witness or half-hearted in the pursuit of holiness, half-hearted in my desire for Christ. It's an individual danger, and it's also a corporate danger. 
In the Old Testament book of Zephaniah, in chapter 1 and verse 12, it gives a great definition of complacency. And it says this, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. So when you've drunk off all the good parts and it's just the dregs left, think of drinking coffee and it's just the grounds left there. And who wants to drink that last bit of sludge, right? That's what it's like to be complacent. All the good stuff, it's, it's gone. And it's just the dregs that are left. And then he says, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad? That's the biblical definition of complacency. And what's the difference between complacency and contentment? Well, contentment says that God will take care of me. But complacency says that God doesn't care what I do. The Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. And that was Israel at that time. They said, we're God's people. We'll always be God's people. Yeah, we've fallen into some sins and we don't follow the law very carefully, but the Lord's got a lot of grace. That's the definition of complacency. Not expecting the Lord to judge wickedness, nor believing that He can come in great and unexpected power. So let me ask you this morning, do you believe that God is not through with you yet? He's not through with me, I hope, I know. I mean, if we're complacent, if we're bored, if we have nothing to look forward to, then because He loves us, we can look forward to Jesus' discipline and His rebuke. May God help us to examine our hearts. Have you become lukewarm, self-sufficient, rather than dependent on Him? Practically speaking, have you forgot about Jesus, leaving Him on the outside of your life? Have you lost your zeal and grown indifferent to God rather than experiencing intimate communion with Him? Where does Jesus have to knock on the door of your heart because you've closed it? Maybe it's a misplaced comfort. Maybe it's even a misplaced zeal. He wants to come in. May God grant us repentance to open that door and to have intimate fellowship with Him. It's as simple as confessing that our hearts have been hard and asking the Holy Spirit to remind us every single day of our need for Him. And then to go and live our lives in gratitude because of His continued love and grace. I want to ask the band to come up at this time. As they did, we're going to take some time to reflect. As the band plays, um, we're going to spend some time in praise and worship. And may that be a time of reflection for us where we can examine our hearts. May God open up our eyes to see maybe those things that we've been blind to, that we haven't seen, and uh, give us ears to hear what He has to say to us. And as we come to a place of communion during this time, and again, we have, we have um, wine and juice and the crackers around the room at the communion tables, this is a time where weekly we remember Jesus' sacrifice. As we take that cracker and we break it, and we dip it in the wine or the grape juice, we remember His blood that was shed for us. As we do that, may we remember that because of that, we can enjoy communion with Him every day, every moment. It's not just a weekly thing that we do, but it's an intimate communion that He desires to have with us. So as we take that today, may we reflect on that and, and ask God to show us where we need to invite Him in 
to our lives and to our hearts. If you need prayer this morning, we have people who would love to pray with you. Go see Sarah at the um, Welcome Center in the back, and she'll get you connected with one of us. And we're going to worship God by our tithes and our offerings. We don't pass a plate here at Element. We believe that uh, giving is just simply part of our worship, so it's a response to what God has done for us. So we have offering boxes on the side walls. You can also give online if you choose to do that. So would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word to us, Lord. It can be a hard, a hard word, especially, Lord, I, I know for myself, thinking about, Lord, my actions that I'm sure at times have made you nauseous because I know they've made me nauseous as well. At the same time, you, Lord, the, the, the amen, the faithful and true witness, you've revealed your heart to us and that you are gentle and you're, you're humble and that you call us to come to you and that you promise you'll never cast us out. We thank you that you love us enough to chase us down, to come after us when we go astray. For your infinite patience, because you are a God who, who is holy, but yet who is compassionate, who is not like us, Lord, who we give up on each other so easily. You never give up on us. And we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you would renew in us a zeal, that you would grant us a repentant heart. Father, that we would think about you every day in our need for you to live for your kingdom, for your glory, for our joy. Lord, just thank you for being so good to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.